You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you in further. You step forward little by little not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. Welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I am Nick Peters, your host once again, seeking to bring the very best in scholarship in the project. Today, we are going to have a very fun show, I think, because we've got a guest on whose book was an absolute delight to read because it was just so hysterical and so good at the same time. And that's uh, Dr. Andy Bannister from RZIM Canada, Robbie Zacharias International Ministries. The book is called The Atheist Who Didn't Exist, or The Dreadful Consequences of Bad Arguments. Now, who is uh, Andy Bannister? Dr. Andy Bannister is the director and lead apologist for RZIM Canada. He speaks and teaches regularly throughout Canada, the USA, Europe, and the wider world, from churches to universities, business forums to TV and radio. Andy regularly addresses audiences, both Christians and those of all faiths, and none... um, and none on issues relating to faith, culture, politics, and society. With a background in youth ministry before studying theology and philosophy, focusing especially on Islam, Andy was previously based in Oxford, from where he worked with churches and organizations across the denominational spectrum. He holds a PhD in Islamic studies, a topic on which he has taught extensively, especially since 9-11, and the huge interest that was sparked from the subject of the events of that day. He has spoken and taught at universities across Canada, USA, UK, and further afield on both Islam and philosophy, and is an adjunct research fellow at the Center for the Study of Islam and Other Faiths at Melbourne School of Theology. Andy is the author of an oral formulaic study of the Quran, a groundbreaking and innovative study that reveals many of the ways the Quran was first composed. His latest book, The Atheist Who Didn't Exist, or the Terrible Consequences of Really Bad Arguments, is a humorous engagement for new atheism. When not traveling, speaking, or writing, Andy is a keen hiker, mountain climber, and photographer. He lives in Toronto and is married to Astrid, and they have two children, Katriana and Christopher. So, Dr. Bannister, welcome to the Deeper Waters podcast. Nick, it's uh, great to be with you, and uh, by the way, do call me Andy. It sounds terribly formal for the whole Dr. Bannister thing, so uh, you can call me call me Andy, and it's, uh, it's great to be with you. Great to have you here, Andy. Thanks for coming on. Um, if someone doesn't know who you are exactly, tell us a bit more about how you get to be doing what you're doing. Yeah, so you you touched on it a bit, uh, Nick, in that in that bio that you read, but uh, but really to kind of flesh it out a bit. I, if you'd uh, sort of said to me 15 years ago or so that I would end up being in full-time apologetic ministry, I would uh, never have believed anyone who said that mm-hmm. because it wasn't something I'd really thought about, given much attention to, or anything like that in the. In the mid-1990s, I was a youth worker uh, working for a group of churches in London, England, and uh, anyone who's ever done any youth ministry may, uh, may sort of appreciate that all you really need to do youth ministry well is a Bible and a sharp stick. Um, and really, that was, uh, that was all I sort of thought about, just uh, working with young people. And then one day, um, a man came to visit my church and give a, a seminar on, of all things, Islam. Uh, his name was Jay Smith. He may be mm. familiar. Some of yeah, you know, I think you, you may have had Jay on your your show, perhaps. But you don't Not know yet, Jay. but I, I should. Yeah, he's an amazing, incredible um, communicator um, and missionary uh, who's, who's worked many years with Muslims. And anyway, he came to our church, did a seminar, and then he talked about some of the outreach work he was doing at a place in London, England, called Speakers Corner. And Speaker's Corner is sort of known colloquially as the, uh, the, the World Centre of Free Speech. It's a part of uh, one of our parks in London where every Sunday afternoon you can stand on a ladder or a soapbox, talk about anything, religion, politics, you know, you name it, you'll get a crowd. And Jay was using Speaker's Corner to reach Muslims and preaching to hundreds of them every week. And so after his seminar, I just found this fascinating, got talking to him, and he said to me, well, Andy, why don't you come along to Speaker's Corner next week and see what we do? So I thought, well, that sounds like a good idea. So the following Sunday, I, I trotted along up central London, uh, up the Speaker's Corner, met Jay at the, uh, the underground station, 
there, and um, he said to me, um, oh, Andy, glad you've come along. I brought a stair ladder. I thought you could preach next to me. Well, I'd never preached on the street in my life. I'd never talked to a Muslim in my life. And here were 200 Muslims in the crowd, and they were pretty well equipped and pretty well experienced in taking Christians down. And they demolished me. Mm -hmm. uh, utter wipeout. I mean, complete road crush. Disaster. Um, never been so humiliated. Never looked so stupid in public in my entire life. I didn't have an answer to any one of the arguments and objections they raised against my Christian faith. So I went home that day with my head spinning, tail between my legs, almost literally thinking maybe I need to become a Muslim because they appear to have all of the all of the evidence, nothing, you know, nothing that, that in my Christian experience that I can give by way of response. And I lay awake that night, tossing and turning. And about three in the morning, <clears throat> my long-suffering wife turned to me and sort of poked me in the ribs and said, why are you tossing and turning, keeping us both awake? Told her my story. And she said, well, why don't you read a book, ideally in the morning? And uh, so, you know, come the break of day, uh, I went to the local Christian bookstore and bought my first ever book on Christian apologetics. I think it was Josh McDowell's Evidence That Demands a Verdict. I think that was where I started. And I read, and I read, and I read, and I got up, and I kept reading. And I went back to Speaker's Corner two weeks later, answers to every question they'd asked me. And they had new questions. And they made me look stupid all over again. Um, and we repeated this little game for about three months. My Muslim friends would humiliate me ritually in public. I would read to get the answers uh, and come back the following week. And, but something happened. And what happened was this. God used Speaker's Corner to give me a love of apologetics, a love of, of evangelism, and a love of Muslims and atheists and skeptics as well. And uh, really that was the start of a journey that led eventually to theological education, then to the PhD, and uh, eventually into full-time ministry uh, with RVM. So I have Speaker's Corner, Muslims, and Jay Smith uh, to thank, really, for the way that the, the, the God drew me into this. Yeah, you might be surprised that when I interviewed Michael Kona about a month or so ago, he said that when he first found out about apologetics, he wasn't interested in it at all. He said, What's for why, why are you doing this? Yeah, I think it's quite, it's quite common for a lot of people. In fact, even to this day, I would still say... You know, apologetics interests me and fascinates me, sure, but it's really not my main thing. My main thing is I love people. I find mm. people endlessly fascinating, mm. um, whether they're people who agree with what I believe or people who disagree with what I believe. And when it comes to those who disagree with what I believe, you know, apologetics is a really helpful tool for helping somebody hopefully, mm. uh, you know, see something different uh, in the Christian faith or in Jesus Christ than they had perceived. And so to me, apologetics is, is merely a means to an end, so I enjoy it, but it's mm. uh, but it's yeah, very much a, a sort of second or third down the down the rung of rung down the ladder for me. Mm. Well, I found your story quite fascinating. At the least part being that you actually found an apologetics book in a Christian bookstore. That's very <laughs> incredible. <laughs> that that I never thought of it like quite like that. That was obviously God at work right yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, so it, obviously a miracle took place. Now, as humorous as that was, something else that's pretty humorous is your book. When I put up a post about the interview coming, someone I remember said something along the lines of, I decided I needed to read this book at home and several of my commute in the morning because I was just laughing too much as I was reading it. And anyone who reads this book, when I started going through that, well, I, I turned a page and went, yes, there's footnotes on this page. Because that's, that's where the great humor usually was. So how did that come about, that you wrote a book that's just absolutely hysterical? Well, this is quite, quite a story in, in of itself, so I'll try and kind of, sort of do the kind of brief version. Mm -hmm. There are a number of things that, 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 that led into it. Here's the first thing. I mean, your, you know, your comment about apologetics book in, books in Christian bookstores, I agree with, but there's something else I've found over the years with apologetics books, and that's that many of the really, really good apologetics books, you know, the best that we could think of, if you and I brainstormed perhaps a list of ten or a dozen, mm -hmm. You know, often they don't get their way into the hands of non-Christians. You know, it's hard enough getting Christians to read them. Try and get a non-Christian to read an apologetics book is often very hard, isn't it? I mean, right. they, they just don't get outside the circle of the church. So when I thought and felt I wanted to write something, the back of my mind was, okay, how, how do you write something that at least has a greater than the average chance of, of, a, of, a, of, a, of a skeptic and atheist actually reading it and enjoying it as well, not you know not reading it because someone's bribed them to or they're married to a Christian who said they'll divorce them if they don't read it or any of those things, 
Why would, how could you make it so somebody would want to read it? And that led very quickly to the humor angle. I mean, when I, when, I, when I speak in public, I mean, I tend to use humor quite a lot. In fact, my, I think my first ever public speaking was doing stand-up comedy. When in my teens, I experimented, experimented with comedy and stand-up and, and always enjoyed it. So it's kind of woven its way into the way that I present. So it was naturally a way to kind of think about writing the book. And then the last kind of piece of the jigsaw was I came across an interview, uh, or an essay, I think it was actually, that C.S. Lewis uh, had written um, shortly before his death. And in it, he talked about why it was he used, he, he, he started using fiction, why it was he wrote the Narnia books. And one of the things he said, he said, you know, the, the front doorway to people's minds is often guarded. There are kind of watchful dragons that sort mm-hmm. of front doorway against arguments coming in. You know, you can use the best argument in the world. We've all as apologists done this, haven't we? You've been talking to a non-Christian friend, you've shared what you thought was a very, very convincing, you know, case for, say, the resurrection, and it hasn't got anywhere. It hasn't even got, a, the argument hasn't even got a foot in the door. Whilst with Lewis, I wonder whether, you know, using fiction and story and narrative perhaps might be possible, he said, to tiptoe past those watchful dragons and sort of come in the side door. I thought, oh, that's really interesting. I thought, now I'm not a writer anywhere near Lewis's ability, certainly not if it comes to fiction, but hey, I think I can tell a funny joke or two. I wonder whether it might be possible to tickle the dragon under the nose, and while it's rolling on the floor laughing, take the argument through the front door anyway. And so that's really what the atheist who didn't exist tries to do. It tries to be funny and witty and to the very best of my uh, ability. Uh, so that when you give the book to a non-Christian friend, and I always say to you know to Christian listeners to this podcast, my hope and prayer is I'll go out and people will buy copies of the book. That'll make my publisher very happy. Uh, but those who are Christians won't keep hold of it. They'll give it to a non-Christian. And when you give it to your skeptical friend, you can say to them, look, you know you may not agree with everything that Andy says in here, far from it. But I promise you, you will laugh. You will find it funny. You'll find the book enjoyable, even if you don't agree with a single thing that's been said. And I think if it can achieve that, then maybe, just maybe, by the grace of God, it's got the ability to go that little bit further uh, than books that are, you know, much more brilliantly academic than this, but are boring to read. Yeah, I did laugh out loud a number of times and even came to places where I was like, honey, you have to listen to what he said. This is just so good. That's very, very kind of you. Thank you, Nick. Now, we are only going to have the show for an hour today due to some time constraints here, so we're going to be moving pretty quickly here. And naturally, then, we can't cover everything, so let's cover some of the major ones that we come across. One of the ones I like is this one where you start off each chapter with a humorous story, which is totally bogus, but very humorous to read. And I'd like to go one about the aardvoke and the artichokes. And it's meant to address this argument from Richard Dawkins. I have found it an amusing strategy when asked whether I am an atheist to point out that the questioner is also an atheist when considering concerning Zeus, Apollo, Amon, Ra, Mithras, Baal, or Wotan, the golden calf, and the flying spaghetti monster. I just go one god fervor. Now, Andy, that sounds like a powerful argument to so many atheists out there and heck to a lot of Christians as well because the atheists are just saying hey you know you you just believe in all these other gods I've just gone one more why aren't you that's right and uh, I mean, one of the things I do in the in the book is I mean we, t- we, we always make sure we take you know real arguments from real atheists so mm-hmm. you know we're not picking this kind of stuff up mm-hmm. uh, but no exactly that argument come from Dawkins, it's, he's, uh, he popularized it, it's become known as, uh, as the one God more argument. And uh, as you say, when you first hear it, it's very clever. When I first heard it, I remember thinking, gosh, that's actually quite clever. But then, and I think this is the case with every, all of the arguments I addressed in the 11 chapters of the book, I began to notice something. So often with these new atheist arguments, when you start poking at them and prodding at them, they begin to disintegrate. Uh, they may they may look very clever on the outside, but underneath they're completely hollow. And I think this is the case with this this argument, as uh, as I hope I show in this in this chapter, that there's a number of major problems with it, such that it's not simply slightly wrong; it's laughably wrong, hilariously wrong. Well, one thing you say in this chapter, given the illustration of the kind of writing you have in there, is how should we deal with this kind of questions? It's 
Instead, what we should do is what rational, normal, intelligent people do all the time. Fire up Wikipedia. Sorry, I meant look up the evidence. As someone who can't stand Wikipedia, I wrote in my book copy, Gold, at that point. Yeah, it's um, it's interesting. I mean, to, to, to stay with that argument for a minute, exactly. I think I think you know when you begin looking at the one God more, one God more argument, the problem you hit, and um, and as I say in the book, I kind of use a humorous story to bring this out that probably doesn't work quite so well on a podcast. But what that argument is basically saying is that when you've got a range of possible options. Uh, and you're being asked to pick one, well, you can't pick one. You have to either embrace them all or reject them all. That's what the argument is basically saying. You know, the Christian is, a, is foolish for suggesting that just their God is, is the real God and all the others are false. Therefore, we should reject all of them. And the problem is, when you push that to its logical conclusion, that causes a number of uh, fields of human inquiry to collapse. One of the ones I explore in the book is the criminal justice system. You know, the police have 10 suspects for a possible murder case. They eliminate one by one. They eliminate each of them until they're left with the guilty party who they're convinced has done the crime. Well, of course, presumably at that point, the uh, the accused can turn around and look the police in the eye and say, well, hang on a minute, I'm being discriminated against. You know, you've thrown out all of these other suspects. I encourage you, just go one suspect more and let me go as well. Mm-hmm. Um, clearly, that's wrong. Why is it the police have held on to that one suspect? Because of the evidence is there. There is evidence that that person is guilty and the others aren't. And thus, when it comes to, you know, Yahweh and the flying spaghetti monster and Zeus and Amon Ra and all of the others, sure, we can take a look at, uh, at the evidence. And, uh, I mean, in the case of the flying spaghetti monster, the evidence for, uh, for his noodly appendaged existence is entirely nil. Not slight, not partial, absolutely nil. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like to say to my atheist friends, look, even if you do not believe in the God of Christianity, it is a foolish atheist who's going to sit there and say there is no evidence at all whatsoever. Mm-hmm. If that were the case, there would not be a discussion. Um, there is evidence. We need to discuss whether there's good evidence and whether the case that Christians can make is a good one or not. But the idea that there's no evidence is, uh, is ridiculous. And in fact, a couple of weeks ago, I was recording a podcast um, for a well-known apologetic show called Unbelievable. You've probably come across Unbelievable. Oh, yes. Riley. And it was really interesting. He had me up against Michael Ruse, the well-known North American uh, a, a philosophy professor. I don't know if you know of Michael's work. Oh, yep, really I nice. do. And uh, he said something very interesting. I mean, he's an eminent philosopher, has no time for Dawkins, so he mm. liked a large chunk of the book, although he disagreed with other, other chunks of it. But in the interview, he said something very interesting. He said, one of my problems with the new atheists like Dawkins, he said, is they just haven't thought things through. He said, Christianity... Uh, is I've been studying philosophy for 50 years. He said, I've come to the conclusion that Christianity is a very serious answer to a very serious question. He said, now I happen to think it's a wrong answer, but nevertheless it is an extremely serious answer that you need to take uh, and, and weigh and measure and deal with carefully. You can't simply dismiss it with a soundbite. And, uh, and I think that's the problem there in a nutshell with the new atheism, that mm-hmm. it tries to sort of ridicule, it tries to come up with soundbites, you know, things that play well on the side of buses, um, whereas, you know, I think there's a more, I'm far more reflective atheism. Michael Ruse, or perhaps to go back a generation or so, say Bertrand Russell, would say, look, you know, I'm not a Christian, Dr. Russell would say, but he would say, you know, there is evidence to be considered. This is a serious conversation to be had. Yeah, the McGrath actually have an endorsement for their book, The Dawkins Delusion, by Michael Ruse, where he says, the, the God delusion made me embarrassed to be an atheist, and the graphs show why. Yes, that's right. Yeah, it's inter- very, very interesting, isn't it? And one of the things I want to be, I'm very clear about in my book, um, you know, Nick, that I think is a very important point. I'm very, you know, very, very, very careful to want to be saying, look, I'm not attacking atheists. I have a lot of respect uh, for atheism in its more intellectual forms. Again, I don't think atheism is true, but you know, likewise, Christians, we can't just dismiss it. Uh, with a soundbite, but I do say to the reader, look, if you're going to be an atheist, if you're going to walk away from the book at the end of the book, at the end of the read, remain an atheist, that's fine. I'd rather you didn't, but it's fine. But at least be a thought-through atheist mm-hmm. uh, and abandon bad arguments. You know, Christians can be guilty of bad arguments too. My word, we are not immune from it, sadly. Oh, yeah. But neither are our atheist friends. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so many of these, uh, these ideas and concepts popularized by the new atheism are simply bad arguments, and they make atheists look foolish. And atheists are not foolish. 
Um, most of them, most of the ones I meet anyway. Yeah, I've actually <coughs> come to a point where it looks like you know, a lot of atheists are much more prone to this, in fact, because they automatically seem to think because they're atheists, they're automatically reasonable people. And yeah. if they're reasonable people, where their arguments are going to be reasonable and rational, because, hey, if you're reasonable, you're not going to fall for a very bad argument. And how yeah. do you know you're reasonable? Well, you're reasonable because you don't believe in God. I, I actually call it presuppositional atheism. <laughs> you know, it's interesting you say that. I think, I, think, I think you're right. I mean, I touched on it in the book in a couple of places. Where I first ran into that was Christopher Hitchens, mm-hmm. uh, the, late, the late Christopher Hitchens. So for me, always one of the most interesting of the new atheists. And uh, very sad that we lost him a few years ago. But I know in his, in his book, The um, God is Not Great, he tackled, he's, he's, there's a chapter where he's tackling um, the question of Stalin. Because, of course, if you are an atheist, one thing to say that atheism is rational and safe and friendly and, and, and suitable for children and old people and all of these kind of things, um, you have some problems. There are some, there are some slugs on the pristine letters of atheism when you look back through history. And one of them would be Stalin, Joseph Stalin, I mean, the Russian leader responsible for the deaths of 200 million people, you know, absolutely avowed atheist. And so I remember sort of reading that chapter in Hitchens' book with interest, thinking, okay, how is Chris going to deal with this? And this is how he dealt with it. He said, well, he said, it's irrelevant. He said, silence is simply irrelevant for this reason. Um, you know, atheism is rational. Uh, communism was irrational. And therefore, uh, Stalin wasn't really an atheist. I remember going, is that it? I, had to sort of, I sort of reread the page. Have I, have I actually misread the argument? But no, that was the argument. Exactly that. You know, anything that's irrational can't possibly be be, be atheist, uh, and uh, you know anyone who, who wears the label rationalist or free thinker or these kind of things, you know, by definition, has to be safe and, and sane, sensible, and that clearly isn't the case. Well, I'd like to remind everyone you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast. We only have an hour show today. Right now, my guest is Andy Bannister, talking about his wonderful book, The Atheist Who Didn't Exist. But next week, we're going to have Greg Manette on. He's written a book. For Rome Jesus, but we're going to be mainly talking about the barrier of Jesus, because his, his uh, PhD focus is on Jesus' barrier, and answering questions that skeptics have about the barrier of Jesus, such as, was he even buried? Barterman says no. Right now, is Barterman wrong? Well, we're going to find out more. But right now, let's get back to Andy, and I'm also thinking with what you said about Christopher Hitchens, whose worldview could be a, have been summed up as, there is no God and I hate him. <laughs> but, but Sam Harris actually went a step further and said, well, what, uh, what these people do, they do it with a religious mindset. So this really is the fault of religion as well. Yeah, exactly. And I think what's interesting with, 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 with Harris, I mean, Harris is a fascinating case in point um, to illustrate some of what we've talked about. Obviously, there's an attempt there to recognize that there's a problem uh, when it comes again, you know, again to the likes of Stalin and so forth. And so, you know, what's, a, what's an enthusiastic new atheist to, to do? You, you can't, there's no room for nuance. This is the problem for me in the new atheism. Uh, you know, a far more nuanced approach or a sensible approach would be to say, you know what, there are some embarrassing moments in atheist history, and Stalin was one of them, and it was an embarrassing moment, and yeah, it's a, you know, it was a complete disaster, it was a travesty and a tragedy, but you know what, that doesn't mean that every atheist today is going to behave as him. That would be, I think, the most sensible way to do it, in the same way that a Christian might talk about some of the, you know, some of the historical, um, you know, travesties done in the name of Christianity. We have things like the Crusades and other things that are there in history, and I get nervous in the same way with Christians to try and airbrush history. Uh, because history is, by its very nature, bloody and messy, because human beings mm-hmm. are bloody and messy. You see, that's the thing I think the new atheists are not willing to admit. You see, as a Christian, I think I have a far more realistic view of human nature than do my atheist friends, because they are committed to the idea that humanity is getting increasingly better, you know, that we're slowly progressing in, in you know, scientific steps towards utopia, Whereas, you know, a Christian reading his or her Bible is committed to the idea of, you know, what human beings have inherent value and dignity because we're made in the image of God. But my word, are we screwed up because of the fall? And my word, do we need the gospel? And if we don't have that and it doesn't work itself its way through our lives, we are very likely to go wrong in all kinds of horrible ways. Um, so I actually think Christians have, we have a head start often over our atheist friends because we have a far more realistic view of history. And that kind of sort of Pollyanna view 
of the human condition and that extremely naive saccharine view of history comes out you know bubbles to the surface in the new atheism all the time they just can't deal uh, with shades of grey and they just can't deal when people bearing the name atheist uh, go wrong and you see that you say in Harris you see that in Hitchens and you see it in Dawkins too mm -hmm. yeah, I'm kind of surprised while we talk about Stalin you didn't point to the obvious fact that Stalin has a mustache which uh, as you say in your book, it's the obvious sign that he's an evil villain that must be taken down. I'm glad you, I'm glad you raised that, Nick. Is you know one of the things I found interesting researching this book um, is that you know just when you think you've seen some of the most, some of the worst bad arguments that you can possibly encounter from from our new atheist friends, uh, you sort of turn the page, or uh, with someone like Dawkins, you turn on Twitter. And uh, you realise that you were you were wrong. There is there is there is worse to come. Dawkins plus Twitter is a recipe for disaster. Mm -hmm. And that's right. Um, you know, I think it was sort of three or four years ago um, now. Um, Dawkins tweeted, "Here we are, second of March, 2014." I just found the, the reference in the book. He tweeted this. He tweeted, "Stalin, Hitler, and Saddam Hussein were evil, murdering dictators. All had moustaches. Therefore, moustaches are evil." Uh, and what he's trying to do is trying to use kind of ridicule to sort of go, look, the idea that, uh, you know, Stalin, Hitler and Saddam Hussein had atheism in common is irrelevant. They also have moustaches in common. It's, it's, it's it, you know, it's got nothing to do with it. And uh, as I go on to say in the first chapter of the, of the book, I mean, the whole number of problems with that, it's almost difficult to know where to begin. But the biggest problem is this, that we actually have the testimony of these men and their own writings as to why they did what they did. And in the case of Stalin, I focus on him. Hitler's more a more complicated case. I don't think it's as straightforward as saying Hitler was an atheist uh, or Hitler was a Christian, as our atheist friends like to do. He was very much a sort of unique individual. But Stalin is easy. Stalin was an atheist. He was clear he was an atheist. His journals and his private diaries, very, very clear about his atheism. He was head of something called the uh, militant rank, the rank of the militant godless. Uh, responsible for the closure and the dynamiting of tens of thousands of churches, the torturing and raping of, uh, raping of nuns, the extermination of Christian leaders. Very easy in the case of Stalin. And you can read, and he tells you why he did what he did. And so for Dawkins to completely ignore uh, Stalin's own testimony, to me, is hugely problematic. And one of the things you, you may recall in the book I had some fun with is to flip that back on Dawkins. And so if we ignore people's own testimony, we can do the same thing to Dawkins. You know, why did Richard Dawkins write the book The God Delusion? Um, I mean, clearly he didn't write it for the purpose of, purposes of advancing atheism. I mean, that's what he would tell you, but we can't trust what people tell you themselves. Mm. We could make up some spurious reasons, and we have fun over two or three pages suggesting some of the reasons that he might actually have written the book. Well, when we did talk about uh, evidence, you know, one of the big evidences that we're told Christians give a lot of time is faith. I mean, this is the yeah. Santa delusion, isn't it? That's right. Well, there's a couple of chapters in the book dealing with the whole faith uh, question. There's the, uh, there's, the, there's the Santa delusion, and later on we come, we come back to it. But yeah, the Santa delusion chapter I had some, some fun with. And in that chapter, that's chapter, the fourth chapter of the atheist who didn't exist, we play uh, with this claim that, uh, again, many of the new atheists have put forward that belief in God is, uh, you know, can be compared to uh, to belief in in Father Christmas. So again, let me just give you a little uh, a little touch of Dawkins for you. To be fair, it's not just Dawkins I engage with in the book. It's just that he writes the best atheist one-liners. Mm -hmm. And uh, so Richard Dawkins, uh, in his book A Devil's Chaplain, uh, tells us he said Father Christmas and the Tooth Fairy are part of the charm of childhood. So is God. Some of us grow out of all three. And again, very clever line. I mean, basically suggesting that people like you and I or our listeners to this podcast who, who have a Christian faith, basically we're childish. We're, we're, we're just on the same uh, you know, uh, intellectual, emotional level as a little child who believes in Father Christmas or who believes in, in the Tooth Fairy. And uh, it's a very clever idea. I always, I always want to say this about, about Dawkins and his, uh, his, uh, his co-new atheists. I mean, the, the, ret the rhetorical power of this stuff is very, very clever. There's a reason it's had such a success. Mm -hmm. um, but of course, there's a huge number of problems uh, with the idea um, that belief in God is like belief in, in Father Christmas. And, um, you know, it's interesting, isn't it, that, that Richard hasn't, number one, hasn't felt the need to go out and write the book The Santa Delusion. Mm -hmm. uh, he really thought that belief in Father Christmas was as pernicious as belief in God. Presumably, he would have written that book, but it hasn't yet been forthcoming. 
You don't go on the internet and find debate forums set up asking, does Santa exist, does Santa not exist, and find a, you, you don't find books in bookstores saying, Santa is real, he is real, he is not silent, things of that sort, or mere Santa belief, anything like that. I mean, but with God, you do. Well, that's right. I mean, at the very least, that would suggest that, you know, if someone wants to be a sort of more, uh, a more thoughtful atheist, that would at the very least suggest there is something going on, that you can walk into bookstores or you can walk into a, you know, a good university books, uh, library. If you pick any, you know, your nearby university, go and visit their library and go to, say, the philosophy of religion section, you'll find it's massive. Mm-hmm. Um, the philosophy of Santa Claus, I'm not even sure there's been a single book published in the last <laughs> 2,000 years on that subject. But the other problem with this, and I, um, I, I often do this as an experiment, in fact, I was speaking on the book at a men's breakfast just last weekend, and I, and I repeated the experiment uh, with this group of about 30 guys I was, I was speaking to. And uh, it was interesting that, that, to see it again. It, it repeated the, the same numbers I'm about to quote you repeated at, in, on this side of the Atlantic rather than, than back in Canada. I'm in the UK at the moment. And this is what I like to ask audiences. I like to ask Christian audiences, okay, how many of you here became a Christian after the age of, say, 13? You know, age 13 or above. And usually about 60 to 70% of the audience raised their hands. And that was the figure last, last weekend. Um, about 75% of the, the audience raised their hands. They'd become Christians either as teenagers or as adults. And then, of course, that just sort of immediately makes you realize something. You know, how many people, in fact, I asked last weekend, I said, okay, that's great, put your hands down. Now, how many of you uh, here believe in Santa Claus? Not a single hand went up. Sometimes you get a comedian or raise their they raise their hands to be funny, and you say, okay, just out of interest, how many of you know or have heard of people? Perhaps you know, you know, strange members of your family, some you know peculiarly odd, you know, uncle from Tennessee or something. Um, how many people do you know who come to, came to believe in Father Christmas after the age of thirteen? And of course, people can't think of anybody. Immediately, that tells you there is a staggering difference between belief in God and belief in Santa Claus. You know, that many, many people come to believe in God after you know, an intense period of reflection, having thought it through, you know, wrestled with the questions you know, as a as mature adult with life experience, uh, whereas Father Christmas you know, gets left behind in childhood. I mean, I have a, I have a three-year-old daughter, and uh, she has already worked out that Father Christmas isn't real. Uh, she's three years old. So, you know, the idea that belief in God is like belief in Santa Claus is ludicrous. Actually, I am here in Tennessee where my wife and I live, and I don't know anybody who came to believe in Santa after the age of 13, so we're still pretty safe here. I'm glad that's backed up. I didn't mean to pick on your esteemed state there. (laughs) It's okay. It's okay. I thought it was humorous. I I didn't know if it was intentional or not. Maybe it was subliminal. I just, uh, it just popped into my you know, maybe we should be clear then, because a lot of people do have this bogus idea of what faith is, yeah. and unfortunately, a lot of Christians justify that idea. Oh gosh, yes. Yeah, I think so. I, you know what? The interesting thing is, I think, yeah, faith is one of the most misunderstood words uh, in the English language, um, in some ways, because I think what many people think, certainly what Richard Dawkins, Chris Hitchens, you know, Sam Harris, and many other new atheists think, and certainly many of my skeptical friends that I encounter, seem to think faith means you know, believing something uh, in, if, for which there is no evidence, or which there could be no conceivable evidence. That's what they think faith is. So faith is immediately played off you know, as, being, uh, as being antithetical to reason. And in fact, in the book, I quote that little quip by you know, Mark Twain, uh, who once remarked, he said, you know, faith is believing what you know ain't so. And I think a lot of people think that's the case. And that immediately means there's a problem, because when people hear, you know, that, about the, like, phrases like, you know, Christian faith or Christians talk about having faith in God, of course, if you're a skeptic who thinks that's what faith is, immediately in your brain, you're going to be thinking, oh, okay, that person is uh, irrational, or at the very least, quaint or superstitious. Um, versus, you know, me as an atheist and humanist who's, a, who's, a, who's reasonable and, and rational and all of these things. And so I think one of the one things we have to do, and I address this in the 10th chapter of the book, is really take a very long heart at the word faith and help our sceptical friends understand what we mean by it. And actually, I think be very careful how we use it as, a, as Christians. But I think, the, the, for me, the, the crux of the issue, Nick, is that when you look at the way the word faith is used 
in Scripture, in the New Testament and the Old Testament, but the New, New Testament particularly, and you look at the you know the Greek uh, the Greek word translated faith uh, in English, what it really means is it means trust. Mm-hmm. We still have that idea in English actually uh, that the word faith means to exercise trust in something. Uh, you know, you uh, you like I am. You're a married man. How long have you how long have you and your wife been married? Last month we celebrated five years. Oh, congratulations! Five years. Mm-hmm. Well, she hasn't years. cured me yet. She hasn't cured yet. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I say that my wife. I've been married seventeen years, and my wife definitely deserves some kind of medal. I, I think for that. But um, but obviously, but you know, before you actually got married to your to your wife, presumably there were all kinds of facts that you knew about her. You know, you could have sort mm-hmm. of said you told people how tall she was, what her hair color was, maybe what her favorite ice cream was, all kinds of facts. In other words, you had lots of uh, you know beliefs about your wife, mm-hmm. but only when you actually got married and made that commitment to her, uh, you know, at the front of the church uh, and exchanged vows, you know, exchanged rings and made vows and so forth. At that point, when you got married, what you did was you then exercised faith. You had a series of facts, but you had to go beyond the facts and actually exercise trust. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you couldn't have a marriage. And I think something like that is a much closer analog uh, uh, to the way that the word the, the Bible uses the word faith. You know, it's very interesting. I don't think I tell this story in in the book, but it but it for me illustrates it it nicely. That I was speaking at a university in Vancouver in Canada a couple of years ago, and after I'd spoken uh, and we'd had the Q and A, a uh, young man came kind of trotting up trotting up to the front of the uh, the auditorium and introduced himself to me. Uh, I think his name was Steve, and he said, oh, I'm an atheist. And I said, oh, you know, pleased to meet you, Steve the atheist. He said, yeah, I said, I'm an atheist. He said, but I, 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 I'd be willing to become a Christian. And he grinned, and I thought, okay, this isn't serious. This is a, you know, this is a game. So I, but I humored him. I said, okay, that's really encouraging. I'm excited to hear that. Tell me more. He said, well, all that would have to happen for me to believe in God is for God to do a personal miracle for me, to do a miracle for me right here, right now, tonight, and I would, uh, I would believe in God. I'd be willing to say that God exists. I said, okay, let me get this right, Steve. If you were to walk out of this church, uh, out of this auditorium, actually, it wasn't a church, out of this, um, this, uh, this lecture hall, into the parking lot, and the moment you stepped into the parking lot, suddenly in letters of fire, you know, 300 feet high along the horizon, um, you know, the letters, the words appeared, you know, dear Steve, I, uh, I love you, uh, hugs and kisses, Jesus, you would go, oh gosh, I got it wrong, you know, I now believe in God. He went, well, I guess I would. Yes, I'd believe in God. That's all that would have to happen. I said, interesting. I said, I wonder if it's ever occurred to you that God isn't particularly interested in you, in you believing in him. Mm-hmm. His face was a picture. He said, he said I, I, I thought you were like a Christian minister. I went, I am. I said, that idea comes right out of the Bible, in the book of James, in the New, in the New Testament. I said, you should read it sometime. Um, it says that even the demon, the devil, believes in God and shudders. God is not interested in you believing in him. This is not some game of intellectual chess. And he said to me, well, what, what do you mean? I said, well, God doesn't want you to just, you know, sort of you know, surrender your, your king as in a game of chess and go, all right, God, you win. God wants you to submit your life to him, to bow your knee and to give him your entire life, to give him everything. Mm-hmm. And then he said to me, what, what, what right does God have to ask that? I said, well, two thoughts. One is God's game, God's rules. Um, but I said, more importantly, God's taken the initiative because that's what the cross is all about. God's already given himself entirely and utterly and utterly for you, even while you were miles away from him. So God's, mm-hmm. moved, God's done it first. Now it's your turn. But it's not about, it's not about some game of intellectual chess and who wins. Um, but often I think our atheist friends seem to think that it is. I often like to say <clears throat> that uh, I don't even really like to use the word conversion. Mm-hmm. Such because the Great Commission doesn't say go ye therefore in all nations and make converts. It says make disciples. Yes, and absolutely. we do not do discipling in the church today. Yeah, I you know I'd agree with you. Uh, I'd agree with you entirely. And I think I think therein actually lies the root of so much of our of our trouble. Mm. Uh, quite frankly, because I think a lot. You know, I one of the things that fascinates me is the number of atheists I meet who have had bad experiences with the church. And that actually lies at the root of, uh, of the atheism and the skepticism. Now, not always. I'm not trying to sort of, you know, psycholo- you know psychologically ana- analyze, you know, all of uh, every atheist who might be listening to this. But certainly that story 
repeats itself. I mean, Christopher Hitchens uh, had a Christian background. If you, re- uh, if you read his book, um, Richard Dawkins had, you know, Christian background and and some, ter- some really bad experiences uh, mm. with the church, and so it goes. But I think if the church we we focus more on the idea about you know what it means to be disciples of Christ, uh, that it's not just about uh, you know sort of schlepping up on Sunday and going through the motions, or you know about being holier than thou, or all these other kind of things that we fall into. And goodness me, it's not about politics. That's one of the biggest mistakes we made in the church. That many of our non-Christian, you know, atheist friends think that being Christian means you know you're clean living, middle class, uh, Republican voting, and that's what being a Christian is. And to go, we have got to disentangle the gospel from that perception. Uh, yeah, Christians can do those things. Of course they can, and that's fine. I'm not I'm not having a go, I'm not having a go at you know any political position here tonight. I'm simply saying that is not what the gospel is. Um, but we've allowed those things to become entangled, and then no wonder, you know, our sceptical friends turn around and go, well, we want nothing to do with it. Yeah, I'd like to let everyone know at this point that the Deeper Waters podcast, it's listener-supported. That means it's supported by people just like you out there, and we would really appreciate your support, especially as I'm getting ready to do Master's work in the New Testament, and funding is really, really necessary this kind of thing and if you like what's going on here if you want the show to keep going regularly you need to be doing something to support it and if you can't support us financially at least pray for us and share the podcast with your friends share it on your Facebook pages let everyone know about the Deeper Waters podcast but if you do want to support us financially go to our blog page at deeperwaters.ddns.net and you'll find the link of Help Support the Work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. You click a link there, it'll take you to Risen Jesus, the ministry of Mike Lacona. And you make your donation there. And if you want to set up to be a monthly donor, they can get you set up. But after you make your donation, you email me or you email Mike and Debbie. And you say, hey, I made a donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. They'll make sure we get it. And that donation will be tax deductible. You can also go to the Amazon store, buy books we talk about on the show, buy books that I've written or co-written, and you can go to the uh, jewelry section. I was like, yeah, we're actually in a project ministry of a jewelry section. Because you click the link there, and you go to one of our friends of the ministry who is in charge of premi- of her section of Premier Christian Jewelers. She's a salesperson for them and you enter the code word LOVE and you make a purchase and then you let me or her know about it and 25% of your purchase will go to deeper water. So guys, you can get your wives something really, really nice to ensure that they don't kill you and you can be supporting a ministry at the same time. And yes, my wife still says something about having a baseball bat under her side of a bed. Haven't figured out what that means yet, but she says it anyway. Andy, do you have uh, any cause or organization you'd like people to donate to? Yeah, there's, um, there's, there's two that are close to, to my heart, Nick. One is obviously the organization I work for, mm-hmm. uh, Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. You can go to RZIM or RZIM if you are for, the, for our American friends, uh, .org, and uh, that will take you to the US site and you can find out what we're doing around the world. And obviously, uh, you know, we are, we're entirely supported. Um, by uh, by donations and by uh, by the kind gifts of folks around the world to make what we do possible, so we'd uh, we'd value that. Um, but also as well, I always like to give a shout out for other kind of causes close to to my heart. And I've got obviously a background in reaching Muslims. I think I shared that at the top of the top of the show. Yeah. And there's a wonderful uh, organisation called the Foundation for Relief and Reconciliation in the Middle East. F R R M E. Org, and it's run uh, by a guy called Andrew White, who is one of the most incredible Christian leaders I've ever met. He's no, known as the Vicar of Baghdad, and he's an incredible man doing an incredible work in one of the most difficult places uh, in the world. So I'd love people to go and check out F-R-R-M-E uh, dot O-R-G, or just put, uh, put Andrew White, Vicar of Baghdad, into Google. You'll find, uh, find his stuff. And they're just doing incredible, incredible work there. What the way that God is using them is uh, is 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 breathtaking. Mm-hmm. So those are two organisations close to my heart: Andrew White and uh, and ourselves, as I am. When you were talking about going to church and going from emotions, I created that thing of a quote I heard back not too long ago, earlier this week. In fact, where it was said that uh, 
going to church nowadays is more being seen like a meeting of Jesus's Facebook friends together. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? And I mm-hmm. think um, there's a whole other conversation there, Nick, around I think I think the way that one of the impacts that social media has had on a whole series of things, and in terms of you know human relationships, mm-hmm. um, you know, in some ways depersonalizing them and making them more shallow, but also where that's then crashed over uh, into the into the church. And I forget who it was who said that you know we need to remember that Jesus is not interested in friends, like in the Facebook sense, but disciples. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then John Piper. Uh, once said, and I, 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 John sometimes can be a sort of a little bit extreme for my liking, but I thought he nailed the, nailed it on the head beautifully with this one. He said, you know, he thought that uh, that, that Facebook uh, and Twitter were had been invented so that on the day of judgment nobody has the excuse I didn't have enough time to pray. <laughs> well, let's talk about this for a moment. <laughs> Facebook logs. Yeah, yeah. And you know, when we start talking about psychological motivations, though. This is another argument in your book that some people say that Christians hold what they believe for psychological motivations as something when atheists said to me earlier week that yeah, you people just can't stand to be without your security blanket and I don't think you don't have a clue about me at <laughs> all. I think you're telling me more about yourself than you are about me. Yeah, do you know, it's interesting the whole the whole psychological piece. I mean obviously that's not in one sense that's not a new argument. Um, I mean, people like Freud, you know, Sigmund Freud popularized uh, popularized that, but of course it was more academic flavor of it. What we've seen with uh, with the new atheism has been a real sort of you know turning that into a into a polemical missile uh, to lob at Christians. You know, as mm-hmm. uh, you know, the only reason that you know you I you or I are Christians, you know, some of my atheist friends would say, is because you know, we're afraid of death, mm-hmm. uh, afraid of our own mortality, we're not mature enough to cope with life. So we've invented, you know, the kind of invisible man in the sky, your invisible friend, the sky daddy, who's mm-hmm. there to give you, you know, comfort and, and security. And, you know, God, you simply believe in God uh, because he makes life more, more comfortable. And so I obviously, you know, sort of lay into that fairly, fairly powerfully in the book. And I think there's a number of problems uh, with it. I mean, the first and most obvious one, of course, is that uh, how I feel about something, you know, doesn't tell me whether or not it exists. You know, there are many things that I feel good about. I feel good about mountain climbing. Uh, you know, I like the idea of, uh, of mint choc chip ice cream. I like the idea of tea. I'm very English. You know, I drink I drink 15 cups a day. Tea You're a blessed man. I like the idea of sex. I've been married for 17 years. I think it's yeah. one of the most inventions. Um, <laughs> but the fact that I like those things doesn't tell you if they exist or not. Just because I like them is not an argument against them. Uh, there are some things I like the idea of that don't exist. I mean, I quite frankly love the idea of miniature roller skating elephants. Mm-hmm. Um, but just because I like the idea doesn't tell you that, you know, that they, they're false. In other words, you can't get from how we feel about something to its existence. It's, it's completely nonsensical. It also misses the point, I think, the whole psychological argument against God also misses something else that's profound. And I think this is something that ties into what you said a moment ago on discipleship. You know, we've often peddled, I think, in North America and, and European Christianity as well at times, this kind of idea that the Christian faith is easy. You know, if you become a Christian, life will be wonderful. You know, Jesus is your best friend. He's mm-hmm. everything okay. And that really life should be, you know, as a Christian, should be easy uh, with no sort of speed bumps on the road and, uh, and it should be wonderful. And that does a number of problems. One is, of course, it sets people up for failure because what do you do when life goes badly wrong? You know, what do you mm-hmm. do if you're a follower of Christ and your child still dies of leukemia? What do you yeah. do? And if you've, if you've gone into the Christian faith thinking God is your security blanket, your problem. But also it neglects something very important in the Gospels. You know, Jesus said to his disciples, he didn't say, hey, you know, follow me and it'll be wonderful. He said, take up your cross I, your, you know, your court, you know, and come and follow me. Lay down your lives, in other words. Mm-hmm. It's going right. to cost you everything. Mm-hmm. I think it's C.S. Lewis who said, you know, when Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. I think it's Bonhoeffer. Oh, no, it was Bonhoeffer. Actually, thank you. There we yeah. go. I, you know, exactly. Thank you. This is great. You've got an encyclopedic mind. Bonhoeffer said that. <laughs> Lewis said something similar. I mm-hmm. think so I'll defend myself that way. Mm-hmm. But the idea is so powerful, isn't it? And I think, yeah. and I often say to my atheist friends, you know what? If I was making up a god, I would make up a God, I'd make up a faith considerably easier than Christianity. You know, okay. I would make a God whose job is to affirm everything I believe, to say that everything is okay, and to offer me, you know, lots of good things and no costs. But that is not the God of the Bible. 
You know, Christianity is incredibly, incredibly tough. And again, I think we haven't communicated that. We haven't lived that uh, often in Western Christianity. And thus, we, we're, we're reaping the whirlwind. Yeah, to, to use an example of what you said, and you said, you know, we're married men, we like the idea of sex. So if I was making a religion, I would make it be that, you know, even if I did want to uphold marriage between one man and one woman, I, I'd cut out that thing about lust, because, you know, that is just so extremely difficult to follow. I mean, it, it, it can be enough to say, hey, I don't sleep with anyone else, but say, hey, you're not even supposed to look at them and desire them. Like, wow. I, I would not make it up, and trust me, there are not enough people out there I've had enough anger towards. I would love to knock that thing out about not hating your brother. It, it would be so much easier for me. Yeah, I think you're you're right. I think you know it's interesting. I mean, that sort of segues sort of nicely. I know we're sort of coming coming towards the end of the show. I mean, that segues nicely into the last um, the last chapter where I talk yeah. about um, you know this idea that Jesus doesn't exist. Oh yes. Friend to put forward. But one of the things I talk about there is that I say, you know, if Jesus was merely an invention of the early church and merely an invention of men, I mean, when you start looking at the teaching of Jesus, it's so incredibly tough that you wonder, you know, what on earth is going on? Um, you know, I mean, it's not as if Jesus goes around to people in his ethical teachings saying, you know, you know, generally be a nice person and generally be life and don't hurt others, and you know what, and, and you'll be you're okay. He doesn't say that. Uh, you know, Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You know, to which many of us want to say, well, hang on a minute. You know, have you seen my enemies? Yeah. My friends, my friends. You know, if you knew the people, if you knew my colleagues, Jesus, you wouldn't say that. Um, and then, you know, he says, if, if someone takes your shirt, your coat, offer them your shirt, you know, be perfect as God is perfect. Uh, you know, you look, at them, you look at the things that Jesus actually teaches and you find yourself thinking, if someone made this stuff up, what on earth were they thinking? And then, of course, you get into the staggering personal claims of Jesus that, quite frankly, are just, uh, are just, it's just bizarre that if, the idea that somebody would actually invent this stuff out of whole cloth. Uh, you know, you really are forced back to this incredibly, uh, incredibly uh, enigmatic, mystifying uh, but terrifyingly uh, controversial personality who stands at the middle of, you know, first century history, about which we have to we're forced to make draw some conclusions. And you know, I come back to, in the book to say, look, you know, it may not, it may, have, it may not be perfect, but C.S. Lewis, this definitely was C.S. Lewis, not Bonhoeffer, was barking up the right tree, as we say in England, when he when he used his trilemma, you know, mad, bad, or God. Um, it, you know, that gets to the heart of something. Uh, in the person of Jesus, and yeah. uh, and really that's where the book ends, and sort of encouraging atheist friends to say, look, you know, put aside the bad arguments and just give Jesus a careful look. You know, I'm not asking people at the end of the book to bow their knee and become a Christian to sign some little form and send it off, just to give Jesus a, a fresh look, um, because I think when people do that, something sometimes happens, and in fact that really is for me what apologetics is all about. You know, apologetics is not about winning arguments, because often we don't win arguments anyway. We might make people think, but they'll still walk away. But, our, but I, what I, I think what apologetics can do is clear away baggage and obstruction so that people can see Jesus uh, more clearly. And, uh, and I forget who it was who said, but I, you know, I think this is the, the, sort of, the sort of motto in a sense that I've tried to live my ministry, carry out my ministry by, as many of us have doing this kind of stuff. But, you know, any apologetic, any arguments that doesn't either begin with Jesus or lead people to Jesus doesn't deserve the term Christian. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, by all means, we can talk about, you know, the cosmological argument or, you know, all kinds of other pieces. And those are great, but mm-hmm. we need to remember what they are. They need to be tools to bring people mm-hmm. uh, to the foot of, you know, the cross or, you know, or to, or to bring people to, into a place where they get intersect with the life of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And then we need to get the heck out of the way and shut up and let him do his thing. Yeah, I was talking with someone earlier today who was showing a Bartholomew quote about Jesus from his book about how how Jesus became God, about how he says, I think Jesus' insights and are brilliant, they're remarkable, he was like beyond his time, things of that sort. And it just reminded me that if, uh, of this thing, that if there never was a Jesus, we couldn't have invented a Jesus. I think, 
I think so, or at the very least, the kind of Jesus that we'd invented would have been very, very different. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the things I found fascinating, this may be a conversation for another time, I mean, one of the things I find fascinating in in studying Islam for for, for the sort of 20 or 25 years that I have and pursued that to academic level, is I think that does give you a very good uh, test case for what a religion looks like when you construct a major world religion more or less out of whole cloth. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there are not very many surprises in there when you look at when you look at the character of Muhammad uh, when you look at the uh, you know some of the way that early Islam was constructed it really is about about power and politics uh, and advancement um, mm. you know certainly for, for, for Muhammad and his early his early leaders but you know look at the early Christians and you find yourself thinking what why 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 would you be even interested in constructing something like early Christianity you certainly they certainly didn't benefit from it financially mm. uh, uh, many of them lived lives of extreme hardship or lost their lives because of it um, and at the end of the day you know it was a desperately difficult message to take to the greco-roman world mm-hmm. you know by the way the uh, you know the the, the the god who created everything has stepped into history you've alienated half the Greeks at that point who don't believe that you know the, 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 the spiritual world and the material world intersect oh by the way yeah he was Jewish again you've alienated all the uh, all the Greeks oh and he also died on a Roman cross and you've alienated all the Jews at that point um, you know I often say to people that you know if the historical Jesus was an invention of the early church. It's almost like a committee sat down and went, how can we des- design a religion that is going to be as annoying to as many people as possible? <laughs> yeah. There yeah. was a single public relations man among the whole of the first ch- the early church um, if it was an invention. Well, that would be a topic for another show, and let's hope we can do that again sometime. Yeah. But unfortunately, we have come to our closing point here since we've only got an hour today. And the book, The Atheist Is In It, exists. Right now it's available on Amazon. Paperback is twelve fifteen. Kindle version is nine nine nine. As much as Andy wants you to share a book, I, I think you have a harder time sharing the Kindle version with people. But, but you, you can share what you learn, at least, from it. Um, Andy, do you have a, a blog, a website, where people can get in touch with you if they want to find out more? Yeah, absolutely. There are two ways people can... Uh, well, actually, three ways. There we go. Very Trinitarian, Nick. Three ways people find out, can find out about me. I have a kind of blog of sorts. I don't blog as faithfully as I ought to, but people can go to, uh, to andybannister.net, uh, actually. Um, yeah, I'm andybannister.net, and I'll find my blog where I throw, throw a few things out. There's a lot of stuff on there about the book um, at the moment, but I also throw other ideas uh, out there and bits and pieces. So andybannister.net, people can find me there. That's People Bannister of two ends in it, by the way. Uh, Bannister does indeed have two ends, absolutely. You can also go to, uh, they can, uh, listeners can also visit rzim.ca. Uh, uh, that's the Canadian uh, version of the RZIM website, and there they'll find lots of kind of stuff that I'm doing in my public ministry and uh, other stuff about our team and our work in Canada, and there are links there to, to RZIM around the world, but that's about me. And then lastly, actually for the book itself, we have a website which is theatheistwhodidn'texist.com no apostrophe uh, in, uh, in didn't because you can't put apostrophes in website addresses theatheistwhodidn'texist.com and uh, people can download a free chapter of the book uh, you can read a few reviews and as we begin doing more kind of media interviews and things we're throwing some of those um, up there on the web as well so lots of really good stuff uh, about the book so, that, so yeah andybannister.net rzim.ca or the atheistdidn'texist.com there we are we got the web covered Nick hey, is there any final message you'd like to leave for the Deeper Waters audience today yeah I think I just encourage people um, you know and I'm sure many of your listeners are doing this because of the type of show that it is you know whether it's uh, using my book as a tool or whether it's using other books or resources or even just how God has called them I would want to encourage people listening uh, to be thinking of you know who are the atheist friends colleagues, family members in their lives and just sort of prayerfully offering those to God really and saying God who would you have me you know, speak to or talk to or go out for coffee with uh, this week because um, often there's a danger I think for those of us who love apologetics that we very slowly without realising it turn inward and we just end up having a conversation with ourselves and our fellow Christians so I just encourage everybody listening to this to just make sure that we're facing outwards um, and talking to, to those who think differently uh, to us, however hard or scary that may be, uh, because apologetics really is ultimately about giving a, a reason, not to each other, uh, but to those who don't share our convictions. And when we do that, I think God shows up 
because the gospel is powerful and effective. All right, Andy, it's been great having you on the show. Hopefully we'll see you back here again sometime. Nick, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for a wonderful interview. And I'd like to let everyone know that next week we're going to have Greg Manette on. He's going to be talking about the barrier of Jesus. It's going to be a fascinating show. Now, I'm Nick Peters, and I'm signing off until then.